Welcome to this week's edition of On Politics. I'm Dr. Eric Morrow uh, from Tarleton State University, and we're here with you this week on KTRL FM 90.5. And as you have listened, either uh, during our show on Sundays at noon or through podcast or SoundCloud, uh, we are have been doing a series of interviews with uh, state and regional political officials, economic leaders, and others that have helped us to understand a lot of the dynamics that are going on with uh, the coronavirus and its impact uh, that has really radically changed uh, our lives and the structure of our lives in so many ways. And so this week, we are turning to look at some of the questions, issues, and challenges related to the impact of this on religious communities. Uh, there, there are a couple of, of major issues here that we see in addition to other challenges as we look around the country and we see religious communities in, in very, at various stages, depending on uh, what's being permitted for gatherings, trying to, to come back to do what they've done on a regular basis uh, for many, not just decades and centuries, but for millennia, and that is uh, assemble, come together as people to worship, to pray, uh, to conduct uh, ministry and do the other uh, important things that are a part of who they are and, and what uh, they see as their place in this, in this world related to the religious beliefs. And in that, we've seen some very significant challenges. Uh, one has been the, uh, the, the need or the directives that have come from government in order to reduce assembly because seeing the virus and how it spreads is, is one, one issue. And we've seen some of these things originate, some of these outbreaks originate with gatherings uh, for choir practice or uh, for uh, worship services. The other side of this has been the support of government, the direct support uh, to religious communities during this crisis, because one of the main issues, if people aren't assembling, uh, the financial challenges come, and that is uh, communities take in re resources from their followers uh, through offerings, uh, through uh, donations, and it's very clear that those donations are not as available. We're also seeing in terms of the impact on the economy that that people uh, with high unemployment and jobs being lost, that that's having an impact as well. So we're going to explore some of these issues today, and I want to welcome to our show uh, Dr. John Anazu, who is the Sally D. Danforth Distinguished Professor of Law and Religion and a Professor of Political Science at Washington University. And he has a dual appointment there in the law school, as well as at the John C. Danforth Center on Religion and Politics. His scholarship has focused on First Amendment freedoms of speech, assembly, and religion, uh, he has one of his books, Liberty's Refuge, The Forgotten Freedom of Assembly, uh, and another, Confident Pluralism, Surviving and Thriving Through Deep Difference. And he is someone that has given a significant amount of analysis and, and, and scholarly work in understanding some of these issues, both historically, but then also in kind of engaging in this really unique uh, environment that we have, something that's really unprecedented in modern times, to have this kind of impact across so many different spheres of our lives in so many ways. And so, Dr. Nazu, I want to welcome you to the show today. Thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be with you. Well, we, we are right here in Central Texas. We are uh, we, we border on the Dallas-Fort Worth region, uh, the, the, and we here in what was traditionally at one time, I think, known as the, as the Bible Belt. I, I think that uh, is a, a, a term that might be a, a little bit uh, outdated or maybe too broad to kind of understand the, the diversity and the dynamics of religious identity and practice in Texas. But uh, we are full throttle on opening back up the state under the directives of the governor. And th this is one of those issues that has, we've seen both sides of this challenge. We've seen religious communities that have struggled. We've seen uh, religious communities in need of a, a sense of looking at what government is doing to provide that. And we've also seen the, been on really the forefront here with groups that have said, no, we're not gonna follow directives. We're, we're going to push back against uh, what anything government or even local uh, government mayors 
county commissioners are telling us to do. Uh, on the first part of that, I know, I know you've uh, you've looked at this, you've you've given interviews uh, related to what uh, the federal government is doing, but in terms of this process of providing aid and and helping religious communities with their resources to pay uh, clergy, to pay staff, and so on, uh, this, this is really uh, seems to be unprecedented, and it's moving into an area uh, while we've had other uh, issues and cases that have connected to uh, funding directly religious communities. Uh, this is this is seems to be a, a really new uh, aspect to this. Uh, how, how do you see this in terms of uh, establishment issues when we're talking about the first of, uh, looking back locally and now what we're what, what's happening in this dynamic uh, during this pandemic? Yeah, thanks. So you know the 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 big question a lot of people are are focusing on is under the Emergency Relief and the Payroll Protection Act, uh, religious institutions, including churches, are eligible to, to apply for payroll benefits for their employees, which will obviously include pastors for a lot of churches. So the question is, can the federal government directly fund clergy? And there are a number of issues here. One is, is this really direct funding since it's going through banks? I tend to see it as basically direct government funding, even though there is technically a pass-through. And then the other question, though, is, is do we or should we be particularly concerned about government dollars going to clergy? And I think it's a complicated question, but we do have some historical precedent. So one example is we've had since the beginning of this country federally funded military chaplains and then later prison chaplains. And we have a Senate chaplain in, in D.C. as well. And so federal dollars have been going to pay clergy for a long time. Uh, we also have situations when you have a natural disaster, an emergency relief from FEMA or something like that, where federal dollars will go in to help restore not just community centers, but also churches that have lost their buildings. And so the, the question of direct government aid to churches has shown up in, or religious leaders has shown up before in, in different contexts. Here, I think what's different is just the magnitude of the program and the fact that this direct funding of clergy is going to clergy who are not otherwise supervised by or tethered by the government. And so there are, you know, the concerns, the policy concerns perhaps increase. My own view of this is, is if we conceptualize this as a generally available program, which it seems to me it is, it's, it's available for religious and non-religious people. And if we further consider it to be akin to emergency relief, I mean, at the end of the day, these are people's budgets and paychecks and trying to make the you know feed the family and that sort of thing that the the to me the establishment concerns diminish there but there are certainly people who disagree and, and see this as a far greater incursion on the you know the metaphorical church state wall right we're we're, we're using we're taking funds that are brought in from the masses no matter what their religious identification and then using those directly to a a community that has a you know confessional identity a strong religious identity but but we've already been doing that i mean there there there's been this uh, kind of loosening of of restrictions on a number of aspects of federal funding for religious communities uh, you know going back to uh, uh the the latter part of the 20th century when under a number of different presidencies we've seen more opportunities for religious communities to tap into federal dollars for programs that they're running uh charitable work that they're doing i mean do you see this kind of in that in that line as well is that that and where where do you think that i mean do you think and see a a danger in this kind of in the trajectory that we're going when we look back on establishment uh, issues and, and the challenges they presented. Well, I mean, so there there are certainly dangers in both directions, and those historically have been mentioned for centuries. Roger Williams was very concerned about the bleeding of government dollars into the churches because they would corrupt the churches, and Thomas Jefferson was concerned about the bleeding of government dollars into the churches because churches might control government. And so we've we've had this tension, you know, since the founding and even before mm -hmm. the founding. I think you're right to point out, though, other examples where this mixing and commingling of money has been going on for a long time. In the early 2000s, under the Bush administration, the Office of Faith-Based Initiatives uh, facilitated a lot of funding and grants and contracts to social service organizations run by religious institutions. 
Uh, and then even before that, in some ways, the federal tax exemption and attendant benefits are ways in which federal dollars are reallocated or subsidized to a variety of nonprofit organizations, including religious ones and churches. And so if, if you're, if we're kind of doing the follow the money game, the money has really for a long time been going to religious institutions and the churches, as well as to many non-religious ones. And in some ways I see this as just how you have to live in a representative democracy where uh, you, you, you raise money to a central funding source through a tax program of some kind, and then you distribute it to all kinds of uh, quasi-private and private actors, some of which you'll like and some of which you won't like. But in a country as diverse as ours, that's just the way, that's part of how the system works. And so, I mean, I, when I think about who gets my tax dollars through their nonprofit status, I think of organizations I love, and I think of organizations that I think are uh, pretty immoral and reprehensible, but that's the only way I know how to make the system work. Right. All right. Well, when we when we look at this too, I, I think one of the questions I have, especially I do work in the public policy realm and looking at religious communities and political advocacy, and and it really is a, a unique area when you get into the diversity of religious identity and experience across our our country, and then that moves into the political realm. Uh, on the level of advocacy. And, and while we've seen some of that, you know, advocacy from religious groups can be quite diverse and different, sometimes not very unified, and, and sometimes have very minimal results. And so it seems like that a, a, a lot of this, and I, and I don't say, I don't know how well this fits that criteria in this crisis, because it initially seems to be a response. Here we have a group, especially of, of, of people who have, are employed within religious communities, uh, we're seeing challenges across the country. Here is aid that's made available to them as well. But, but it it it, it seems like it's very easy for uh, the uh, politics to kind of get mixed in with all of this. And and, and in a sense, uh, in the policy realm, it becomes one of those where once you've gotten a benefit, uh, there's that kind of expectation going forward. It's very difficult to to kind of remove that and go back and. And th this is where I see this is kind of a new era. I mean, here we have a, a, a worldwide pandemic, something that's just so unprecedented, at least in you know in our in our modern history, to uh, see the impact and experience of this. I, I'm wondering what what this will look like, you know, going forward, and what the expectations will be, because it, it, it I, I've looked at this, and there's been actually some denominations or a, a, a church organizations that have actively lobbied internally to make sure that, hey, they're tapping into this. Uh, where, where, where do you, you know, in looking back to and kind of seeing uh, where this is going, do you, do you see any significant challenges uh, going forward in that kind of relationship between religion and government, given what is happening in this current crisis? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, once you, when you introduce the policy lens, I think one of the fundamental observations is you're always going to have a problem with baselines and and this is always in some ways going to be zero sum so take the example we've been talking about if if the federal legislation had said every nonprofit gets the relief except for religious ones or except for churches then you would introduce a free mm -hmm. exercise problem why are you disadvantaging religious organizations right. if you include them as they did then you raise establishment concerns why are we funding clergy directly and so there's in the, in the policy space, it's always this trade-off and this sort of risk assessment to see what is more in line with the intersection of our, our policy concerns and what the law says and constrains us to do. So that's, that's a set of issues that will always be there and will probably be worked out slightly differently with different administrations and different parties in control. And then you also introduced another really interesting dimension to this, which is internal to a number of different religious bodies, there are theological questions going on. Should right. we right. take this money? What is that? What does taking this money say about what we believe, how we're structuring our internal operations? Uh, now, my best read of this legislation, and, and the guidance has certainly been changing from week to week, but my best sense is this is it's pretty much no strings attached money. The government is giving this as relief money, and it's not saying if you take this money, you know, you need to teach a certain curriculum or you need to have a certain hiring policy. And so for the most part, I think the, from the, the perspective of religious institutions, this should be a relatively low risk 
funding program uh, in contrast to say taking a government contract which might have all kinds of strings attached and then the internal question i think for a lot of religious bodies would have to be a, a lot more careful and might come out with a different answer very good well that, that's helpful in kind of understanding and, and really digging into this this dynamic it is it, it is just so unique i mean uh, i think it's 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 very uh, challenging on a number of fronts and and i'm involved in a, a religious uh, community and that has a national base as well. And, and seeing the discussions that are kind of going on in that has been, has made this a very interesting uh, uh, dynamic of, of how do you understand this assistance and, and how, is, how it is applied and, and really what this will mean going forward. And of, of course, some of the things that we've seen is that it's very limited. I mean, it's small uh, amounts overall when you're looking at some budgets of religious communities and so forth, but it's 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 certainly as we know with many of these things, it can set a precedent going forward, and and those things are, are probably going to end up being worked out in each of those uh, situations, whatever the the crisis or the the issue may be. I, I wanted you know, to turn. Point, just, I was, uh, was just going to oh, jump in. Yes, yeah, sure. You reminded me. Uh, you know, the, the, I think one of the best examples of what you just said is what's called the clergy housing allowance, whereas really a historical mm -hmm. antecedent holdover, a lot of churches and a lot of religious organizations have that preferential tax treatment for clergy and, and sort of funding for their housing. Right. Uh, and, and to your point, these groups have come to rely on that in their budget lines, but it's really hard to justify mm -hmm. today as a policy matter. Why do we, why do we give this special advantage right. just to clergy and religious institutions so if, if Congress were ever to take that away, that's a, that's a real pressure point for religious institutions to say, okay, why is it that we've structured our entire operational budgets around this particular benefit, which perhaps isn't justifiable today? Right, right. that's a very good example. Really turning now to look at the, uh, the, the free exercise aspect of this. So as I said, right here in Texas, we've had both ends of this. We have communities that have have complied reluctantly. We've had those that have said, oh yes, we're gonna take every precaution. We're doing our services online. We're gonna limit uh, or focus on the public safety aspect uh, to those that have organized protests against uh, directives from state and county and even uh, city officials uh, that, that in some way have varied. I mean, it, a lot of it depends on in a state like ours, it's, it's so large, uh, it, a lot of it is rural, but 90% of our population in Texas is in urban metropolitan areas. And, and so the, the, there's been different application of different types of directives. We've even seen some of this move already into the courts where there's been challenges in other states. Uh, uh, well, Texas was one of them, but California, Michigan, uh, other places where religious groups have either both defied the directives and have gathered anyway or have gone about what, what they want to do or they've moved it into the, the legal realm and said, okay, we're, we're gonna challenge this directly in the as a violation of our uh, religious freedoms. Uh, one thing I see when I look at this is that it, it's very much a reflection of the religious diversity we have across our country. I mean, the, the range of responses to this is just, uh, is, is really interesting uh, to see and it really kind of affirms how diverse we are and how different people engage in this. But the, the other part of this I see is, is this, such this strong emphasis on uh, religious freedom for many of these people over against uh, either it's a, like in Texas, we would see it as a very negative view of government. So there's always this just questioning of any act of government in any way. Uh, but, but, but also kind of at times pushing aside the public health concern. And in, in your look at all of this, um, where, where do you see uh, the, this, this argument for religious freedom in there? What do, what do you see are some of the challenges uh, that are created uh, for people in trying to deal with this, where we do have this strong, very, very strong identity? I mean, in Texas, we still have it in our Constitution. I mean, you have to, we've never been removed that you have to believe in God the whole public <laughs> office. I mean, there's, uh, and, and so we see it right in front of us of so people saying, uh, we just we just don't want to do this, and either reluctantly doing it or trying to trying to push back. Yeah, you know. So my first thought is sort of what you were saying in your comments just now. 
it's really complicated and it's complicated by a number of different variables. One is this, the nature of this virus and how we understand it changes every day. And so a policy that's put in place one day may be obsolete or maybe illegal or, or more legal the following day. The other issue is state and local regulations are varying quite differently and different states have different religious freedom frames and protections, both in terms of what people expect and also what the law says. So it's an extremely complicated mix uh, of questions that go into the assessment of you know, when and whether and how to engage in public. I, one general principle that I often remind people though is there's, there's no such thing as an absolute right in constitutional law. So every right is limited, including religious freedom, including the right of assembly. And, and so we, we can think of examples where the government's interest, if it's important enough and if it is tailored enough to the regulation is going to defeat a, a liberty claim every time. You're, you're never going to allow, you're never going to be able to establish the church of human sacrifice, right? No matter how much you believe it, the government's gonna say, sorry, our laws trump your rights here. And that's, that's, that's applicable in a number of contexts. And this virus has shown us another one, public health is a really important interest. Now, how we understand it and what it means in the given time might be more complicated, but if, if, the, mm -hmm. if political actors are, are in, the, in their best estimate trying to support a public health interest, and if they're doing that carefully, then they should have a lot of leeway. Now, having said that, there's also a lot of political discretion in these kinds of questions, which is why we're seeing so much mm -hmm. variance around the country. So in, in the band of the law that says what you can do and what you must do, there's a lot of room for discretion and then local political actors are going to take that differently. I would say, I mean, just you know, on a personal level, I, I'm a member of a church. I, I'm very much wishing that I could be gathering in person and we can't. Um, I'm driving tomorrow actually to McKinney, Texas for a wedding that will be socially distanced and you know, trying to comply mm -hmm. with all of the public health concerns. Uh, and it's not the way I would, I would love to experience the wedding of a friend, but it's, um, I'm okay with sort of erring on the side of caution with some of these things. Now, what gets me concerned, and I do think as we, we're gonna have a lot more litigation and a lot more confusion in the gradual reopening than we did with the shutdown because the shutdown mm -hmm. guidance was, even though it did vary some, it was more clear and more consistent than what we're seeing now. Right. So now the questions, you know, as I'm sure you're seeing at the local level are, well, if the government's gonna reopen, Home Depot and the liquor store and the park, you know, why not the churches? And it's, that is such a, it's an important question. It's also a pretty fact specific question. And, uh, you know, it might be that the aisles in Home Depot and the number of people in that building are different than the number of people singing in a small church building, or it could cut the other way, depending on how the church has mm -hmm. set itself up. And so I think with reopening and the more that we understand about this virus, uh, I think the, at the local level, especially policymakers and and government leaders need to do a pretty careful assessment of what is reopening and why. And as long as you can make a convincing case that you are treating religious institutions and churches akin to similarly situated institutions, then you should be okay. But the but most of the argument is going to be around what does similarly situated mean, right? Right, right. Well, and, and I think I was going to ask you about this, about the diversity across the country in, in applying things and how that contributes to it. I see in my own uh, church in the debates about how you give Holy Communion uh, in this and the variance of the views and practices that are already uh, happening just from one area, one region of the country to another. You see the debate, uh, or, or really the disagreement between, say, CDC guidelines and then the messaging from the White House. This, uh, and of course, we're a, we're a nation of many different uh, uh, political cultures that that view all of these things in a different context. But how much do you think that 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 really that diversity of of what's happening by region, by state, on the national level is contributing uh, to this debate about re religious freedom? Because it seems like that that every now and then, you know, some of that's throwing a, a fuel on the fire a little bit more from one direction or another, uh, where people are saying, "Well, look what they're doing in Georgia, or what they're doing in in Florida, or, or what the president said," as opposed to you know direct public health uh, focused communications. 
Yeah, no, I think absolutely. And I, and I think it, this was also present and complicating far before the virus ever hit. So the, the state of religious freedom, both as a matter of law and as a matter of policy in California looks a lot different than it does in Texas. And it's been that way for decades. And so that um, this is sort of exacerbating an underlying challenge there. And then a further complication, and you mentioned the scope of religious diversity in this country, the way that different religious bodies and denominations are structured also complicates this. So more hierarchical organizations like the Catholic Church, the Mormon Church can issue national or as the Mormon Church did even global guidance and say, here's what every, every one of our churches in the world is going to do in response to this virus. Whereas uh, more congregational based communities like the Baptists and others and a lot of non-denominational churches that I know are in Texas, are, are, are not, there's not a higher body necessarily that's gonna come down and tell them what they should or must do. And, and so that variance actually contributes quite a bit to how different religious figures and institutions are responding to the moment. So, so looking at beyond this, I know as political scientists, we, you know, we don't try to uh, predict and, and look ahead and, 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 and as much as we, we say, okay, what are the possibilities of, of where these things can go? But I, you know, I bridge the public policy and the, the uh, political science realm. And so you have to have a little bit of that in the mix, but I, I didn't know if you, if you see any uh, really uh, uh, formative uh, you know, legal challenges or, or aspects coming out of this going forward. Uh, I mean, I know a lot is still yet to happen and to be written, as you said, you know, as we look, look ahead to the reopenings and the, the challenges that will present, but, but we're aware of the, you know, the history of jurisprudence and related to uh, church state issues and, and just how you have spots along the way that just really kind of changed the landscape. And I didn't know if you see anything uh, in this that, that moves along those lines, either establishment or, or a free exercise that uh, may be, uh, we may be looking at in the future. Yeah, I mean, there's, I think there's some small doctrinal shifts that might emerge out of this, but I actually think of your question more through the policy lens than the legal lens. And it's tied to the old adage that bad facts make bad law, right? And bad plaintiffs make bad movements. And I think I would just urge the advocates who are bringing these religious liberty challenges now to think carefully about what they're doing and what its effect might be on public discourse and really public sympathies for religious freedom going forward. I think right now there are some really important cases that should be filed and are being filed when churches are being disadvantaged relative to other reopenings. But I also think that there have been some grandstanding cases that are quite frankly making religious freedom and making especially the Christians who have brought these cases look really bad and look like they actually don't care about their neighbors or anyone other than themselves. And that kind of public discourse and public rhetoric is going to boomerang back. And it's going to help frame a religious mm -hmm. freedom narrative for people of faith and people of no faith going forward. And I think, I mean, this is one, the, the diversity of religious bodies and religious actors in this country means that there is not one coherent religious freedom movement or effort for protection, but it also means that all of these outlier cases that get a lot of media attention have can have and do have significant effects on the broader efforts. And so I just think it's very, in some ways, short-sighted for, for some, not all of these cases, but for some of the cases I've seen that are, that are sort of sucking the oxygen out of the room for religious freedom. Do you see one, and one last question here, we've been talking with Dr. John Anazu uh, from the from Washington University in St. Louis and the law school and at the John C. Danforth Center on Religion and Politics. Uh, one area here that I see that that may move to the forefront in terms of this uh, discussions and, and, and maybe even collaborations more between religious uh, organizations and groups and government is this issue of public health. Uh, I know this may not be uh, uh, an area, you, I don't know how much attention you, you give to this, but when we, we talk about policy and we talk about this, this kind of relationship between uh, religion and politics. And, and again, that's an area that, that varies across the country. I've lived in Massachusetts and New York and then most of my life in Texas and seen different uh, approaches and understandings to 
uh, public health within even religious communities. And, and that, so as a policy area, I mean, here in Texas, it's a very challenging area because it, it's often, uh, uh, it's subverted uh, over the favor of economic growth and sustaining economic viability, which then creates jobs, which then is, okay, well, people can then get health care if they have jobs. Well, not necessarily the case. And religious communities have not been very prominent actors, at least in modern times. We, we do have some private systems that were developed early on and uh, that, that uh, are a part of the healthcare system in the state. But, that, uh, but, but this is an area that I think might be a, a, a new a kind of a, a new area to venture into where religious communities may need to be more engaged. Uh, I don't know if you see some of that in this and what, what impact that might have. Again, it creates other dynamics there when you have uh, uh, government resources that might aid religious communities in doing more in this area. But uh, it's, it's something to me that I, I think is on the horizon. Yeah, you know, maybe a couple of things there. One is the, the sheer scope and magnitude of what religious organizations do in the social services sector, a direct care of feeding the poor and, and, and the hungry and, and, and uh, housing the homeless and international global relief for those in poverty, billions and billions of dollars and, and hundreds of thousands, millions of volunteer hours. And that's, that, that's just sort of how it is and it's been that way for a long time. And then a lot of non-religious policymakers either don't understand or just ignore that. And it, it's an enormously important part of the social services sector. So religious people, uh, I think at their best are, are sort of living out this ethic of, of neighbor love and it's important to, to keep doing it. Uh, and and in, in the modern regulatory state, that's going to mean government partnerships as well to get it done. So that's, I think one of the things that will continue to emerge. Another one is, and this goes back again to the religious diversity and how, how religious practices differ, but in, in, in re with respect to the virus itself and all of the new public health challenges, some religious communities are going to have to rethink how they gather in person and what that looks like. I mean, I think of all of the formal and informal rituals and liturgies we, we go through in church, hugging people and shaking hands and passing the peace and singing together right. closely. And a lot of those things in the near term are going to have to be rethought. You mentioned Holy Communion and how, you know, how one partakes of that. The, those are re, or those are deeply, deeply important to mm -hmm. a lot of people of faith and they're going to have to be rethought. But the good news is that I think is to my knowledge, almost every major religious tradition has within it resources that allow it to respond faithfully to exigent circumstances. So think about how, how people of faith engaged on the battlefield or on the mission field when the resources and the possibilities that they were used mm -hmm. to just weren't there. And I think in the best case, there are ways to adapt and to be faithful. But that, that sort of, that requires maximizing prudence and setting aside the extreme rights-based talk and just saying, let's, let's think through this together in cooperation with right. our, our neighbors and our fellow citizens. Yes, very, very good. That, that is, uh, I think that is going to be critical to be able to have those kinds of dialogues and be able to have that space uh, to, do, to do that. I mean, again, I see it within our own, my own denomination uh, where I participate and, and know that that's going to make some significant changes. And some of the debates in terms of practices are not just going back 50 or 100 years. In, in some religious traditions, these go back uh, you know, centuries uh, right. and, and millennia, and, and they're, they're now kind of, they're questioning, okay, why do we do it this way? And is there a way to consider public health and, and what approach we should take uh, in the midst of this? Well, I definitely want to thank you very much for joining us today. This has been very informative, and especially in an area where we have a lot of religious participation, religious groups, and and I think this will be very helpful for many of our listeners to understand this, uh, the challenges uh, in the midst of this and, and how really complex uh, some of these issues are uh, that uh, are being given attention by not just religious leaders, but government officials and, and scholars uh, like yourself. So thank you so much for joining us today. It's been great to be here. Thanks for having me. And we will be right back after the break with more on politics.
T for Texas is a Texas-based history podcast from historian Dr. T. Lindsay Baker. Find a new episode every Thursday morning wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to On Politics. I'm Eric Morrow coming to you from the campus of Tarleton State University. This uh, interview that we had today with Dr. Nazu really helps us to dig into some of these critical issues uh, related to the First Amendment, uh, looking at religious communities and the challenges that they have had uh, navigating some of this, uh, something that for most communities, not just in this country, but around the world, is just unprecedented. And, and we've seen uh, outbreaks of diseases and, and, and viruses and so on before that have affected other regions of the world, but just to have this on such a massive scale uh, is quite significant. So we are grateful for him joining us, and I just want to use the last part of the show here to just expand on a couple of areas uh, related to free exercise and establishment, which are both a part of that uh, First Amendment and related directly uh, to religion and really help to look at some dynamics of this, not just in our own region, but around the country. As we brought out in the interview, we see that we have such diversity across our nation. In fact, the United States of America is the most religiously diverse country uh, in the world. Um, hundreds and hundreds of religious groups, different identities, uh, different associations in terms of religion. Some of this based on uh, their uh, history, geography, ethnicity, uh, countries of origin. Uh, it's just very, very uh, uh, challenging environment on the one hand, but it also really reflects uh, the viability of religious liberty. I mean, the, 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 the importance of it in giving that space for people to uh, practice their religious beliefs, to, to worship as they choose, to associate as they choose, to assemble as they choose. And we've seen in this country, while there has been that tension and there are limits on that religious liberty uh, in as much as it may impact other people, the lives of other people or, or follow kind of the, the, the norms of society uh, in terms of what is criminal or what is uh, um, not uh, beneficial to the society as a whole, but we've seen a flourishing of religious activity, of identity, of practice, uh, under uh, this uh, under this principle of religious liberty. And so that that becomes very, very uh, engaged, very significant in a time like this when something that is very significant, it is uh, important and its impact on the lives of people, their 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 identity, who they are, uh, how they shape their worldview uh, within a religious context and within the religious teachings and practices of a certain, a denomination or community, uh, that, that, is, that is such a strong element uh, in, for many people within our society. And so the challenge comes in then is, is just this mix of a political culture and of religious identity uh, that we see some of this pushback against really anything that government would do. And, and, and it's not always just religious people. You have people who are irreligious or non-religious or even religious themselves, but they think there needs to be a very clear separation uh, so that government does not have undue influence on religious communities in structuring or uh, d directing how what they should do and how they should believe and practice. But also on the other hand, that, that uh, larger religious groups or any religious group uh, have control of government. Uh, to use it in a way that may limit the religious freedom of other groups. And so I think this is something that we need to understand and, and what makes this so complex when we look across our country, given the, the religious diversity we have, uh, given the, uh, the salience of religious identity for people uh, and, and how strong that is, how that does influence the way they see government, it influences the way they see policy, they bring that religious identity into what we call the public square uh, to debate and to be, add their influence based on their worldview, often influenced by religious ideas, if they're, if they're a religious person, uh, to, uh, in what they think government should be doing or not doing. 
Uh, where we get into challenges of that, and I think we're going to see more of this as we go forward when we're talking about these issues, is the, the, the communication of that uh, to everybody else in the public square. So someone comes from a religious confession, they enter into public debate about a certain policy issue, uh, and uh, but they use that, They sometimes the debate is, well, uh, my holy scriptures tell me that I should believe this way and thus policy, policy should be shaped this way. Well, that is where we often see the tensions and the challenges of this is that not everyone has the same authority. Not everyone has the same uh, scriptures. Not everyone has the same religious leaders or religious identity. Not everyone is of the same uh, faith uh, in our country. And so it becomes very challenging. And, and this is where, uh, as Dr. Inazu was saying, that you that you really need people advocating, uh, knowing the complexity of this, being informed about it, but being able to enter the public square and communicate that uh, in a language that can be understood by others in the square, that can communicate what are things that we think are good, that should be upheld, that should be understood in terms of the Constitution and our laws, uh, not, not just advocating based on uh, this is my religious authority. Uh, because we need to find consensus. We've got to find consensus around these policy issues uh, that, that so that when they're applied, while not everyone is going to agree, while there may be differences on specific issues, uh, there's still that ability to have that debate, uh, to have that discussion in, in an informed way and in a way that, that reflects the ability for anyone, no matter what their religious identity or religious authority, uh, that they're able to, to have that discussion with others who may not believe or practice the same way they do. And that's critical for the other side of this, and that is that in the public square, you have those who identify anyone who comes from a religious background or religious identity and, and attempts to negate that and to speak, speak ill of it, to say, well, you don't have a voice in the public square because you're speaking from a religious identity and our country is so diverse. And so uh, you're, there's just no space here. And that, that's just as dangerous as, as the other side of it, of, of thinking that we can just communicate our own religious principles and so on in the public square. And we just either expect everybody to understand or comply. This becomes very dangerous when you have people who want to negate the voice of those who are speaking from a religious identity. Uh, and, and, and the challenge there in the public square is getting one that to accept that, but also to help people communicate those things in terms that are, are not just narrowly focused on the good of their community and not just narrowly focused in line with their religious tenets, what they believe and practice, uh, but to think about that in terms of what is good for our country as a whole. Uh, what is what is good and and helpful uh, and and promotes our just protects our liberties, but also promotes the stability uh, that we have in this country uh, that gives people uh, these freedoms that allow these freedoms of religion, assembly, of movement. To to think about how we can have that dialogue and look at it on that level, uh, and still know that religious communities have the freedom to practice and believe. Uh, the way that they they want uh, within that environment, even though they may not, again, the outcomes, they may not always agree with the policy outcomes. That's, that's, that's a given anyway, whether religion is a part of the mix or not. The, the other part of this is that, that we still have to come to decisions about critical issues, and we have a process to do that through our legislatures and through Congress and through the courts and through the, the, the executive of, of government to make decisions and to reach uh, conclusions and to put laws in place. And so the challenge on the other side of that is we're not always going to agree with those outcomes. And you'll find that very much the case with many religious communities. But again, they're in an environment where they can disagree. They can advocate for changing those policies. They can uh, uh, advocate just like anyone else for their representatives, those the people who are part of them, they can, they can join with other religious groups and, and they can make the case for or against certain policy outcomes based on 
who they are, what they believe, what they think is in the best interest of society as a whole. I mean, that, that's been ongoing throughout the history of our country uh, that we have, have and I, the ideal has been to protect that space in which people can come together and debate uh, those critical issues. So that, I think that's one aspect of thinking about this is how do we engage with this in the public square how, because we're going to have debates about all kinds of issues going forward, not just on government support to religious communities, not just freedom of assembly and free exercise. Uh, as we move more into the public health area and we look to the role that government will have as a part of a solution to our public health crises and needs, uh, there are going to be debates, more debates about policy. Uh, and, and what government decides in terms of programs and resources and religious communities because of their engagement with this for a long period of time are, are going to be very much involved in that. And so we need to think about how that dialogue is structured. How do we come to that and have productive dialogue that moves us forward, that protects lives, that, that helps us to uh, um, navigate these very challenging uh, the road ahead uh, on these issues where religious communities do have very much a voice and contribute to a, a ongoing national dialogue on the role of government in relation to public health. And looking at this too, and, and just kind of summarizing and looking back at, at the, the interview today, uh, I think another important part of this is really to understand not only how religiously we diverse we are as a country, but politically diverse. I think most people, if you ask them that question, is our country diverse politically? And they're going to say yes. And uh, because they, they see what's going on, the challenges and the debates and the approaches to different things around the country. But uh, in terms of, of religion and in terms of religion and its role in politics, we, we really cannot ignore a political diversity, uh, not just in terms of ideological diversity across the country, but but regional diversity and how people view government itself. And we've talked about this on this program before, where we've looked at uh, political culture. We've looked at, especially here in Texas, kind of understanding the elements of that, recognizing that it's certainly changing as our state becomes more urban, more diverse, uh, that political culture uh, uh, is, is very much changing and that will at some point we'll see more significant changes in the way that we do politics and, and how we do government, uh, in the state, but that is critical across the country. And I really think people need a, a better working knowledge of that, uh, when they go into the public sphere, especially on, on national issues, when we have all of this diversity brought together, uh, in federal government and in the process of debating and deciding these issues. Uh, it's very, very critical to understand the influences of that political culture uh, on why we do what we do, do. And this is, as we talked about with religious practice, I mean, you have a lot of communities right now that are looking at centuries old practices and, and, and debating how those things should continue uh, because of this current public health crisis, because of the pandemic. Uh, this is also the way we need to approach uh, our understanding of political culture. Uh, why are we doing things the way we, we are doing them? What needs to be reevaluated and what needs to be addressed or changed that would help us be more effective in how we use government? Uh, we're going to see some significant policy challenges not just in terms of responding to the crisis, the unemployment, uh, the economic uh, impacts, uh, the uh, impact on, on corporate America, not uh, corporations, I should say, in, in, in the production of goods and services, uh, the, the provision of healthcare. I mean, there's just so many areas that we've seen over the last few weeks, even the way we vote, the debates about what should we be able to do or not do in the midst of a pandemic? So we're going to see a number of, of challenging policy issues that are going to be in the, the sphere of debate for uh, months and years to come. And it's going to be critical on our part that, that we engage with that, that we're aware of what those issues are 
and that we are lending our voice to those who represent us in terms of our perspective on what government should be doing, on what direction it should go. Uh, we, the, those, those groups that represent our interests, whether uh, depending on what our profession, vocation, uh, or interests are, there are, are organizations and groups that, that lobby, advocate very heavily on specific issues. Uh, religious communities are a part of that. And so we should be engaged with that process uh, in as much as we can to add our voice to these central issues, uh, because it is going to be very critical that we give these issues the attention they need, especially in the areas of public health, especially in uh, knowing that what has happened just over the last few months can certainly happen again. And we have to be uh, better prepared for it. We have to be uh, better, uh, we have to be ready uh, in order to address these concerns. And we have to, we have to determine going forward what the role of government will be uh, in, in addressing uh, these issues and how we will apply that on both a local, a state, and, and a federal level. So I would encourage you out of this discussion that we had today and the ones that we'll have ongoing as we bring in other uh, scholars, experts, uh, leaders in our region and really throughout the country uh, on a number of issues is how this current crisis that we're going through uh, is going to impact government and what it does and how we should be aware of the factors that influence those outcomes those policy outcomes, what, what, why do we end up with the decisions and the directions and the programs that we do via government, but then also to be engaged, to be engaged in lending our voice and support to the things that we think are most critical in terms of what government does. I want to thank you for joining us today for this edition of On Politics. Look forward to having you back with us next week. That's every Sunday at noon right here on KTRL 90.5 FM. I look forward to being with you again and bringing you more engaging dialogue, interviews, commentary on very critical issues uh, that affect us right here in our region, in our community, uh, and issues that are going on throughout our state and around the world. So join us each week. Thank you. Tarleton Radio Network podcast with production from AJ Heyer and Taylor Welch. Find more great shows by searching Tarleton Radio Network wherever you get your podcasts.